And we will open our Bibles to Romans chapter 16. We are right near the end of this glorious, glorious gift that the Lord has given to his church. We have been working our way through this book. There are just a couple of couple of weeks left in this book. By the time we're done, it will have been about a hundred sermons in the book of Romans. I think we might land on 99 by the time we're done, something like that. But uh, it's exciting to come to the conclusion, and I find myself really sad as I look and start working that, that we're, we're finishing this book. Thankfully, the Word of God is filled with glories, not just the book of Romans. And so, wherever the Lord takes us, it will be good. But we are going to be picking up where we left off. That has us at verse 1 of chapter 16, and let's stand together. This will, will be by a long shot our longest passage we've ever dealt with in the book of Romans as we go through. 16 verses this morning, which means the sermon should only be about seven and a half hours long. It'll be great. Hear now the word of the Lord, Romans chapter 16. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sancria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and myself as well. Greet Prissa and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Eponidas, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. And also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches in Christ greet you. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. Lord, for this good and pure and perfect gift that you have given to us, we pray, Lord, by your Spirit, through your word, that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things in your word this morning. We pray, Lord, that you would grant to us repentance where it is needed, that you would grant to us faith, that you would grant to us hope, that you would grant to us by your spirit a deep and abiding love, not only for you, but for your people. We pray even, Lord, that This morning, deaf ears would be made to hear. Spiritually blind eyes would be made to see. Hearts that are dead in sin would be 
brought to life in you. Pray for myself as I proclaim your word that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, you can be seated. Well, we are coming right to the end of Romans, the greatest letter ever written. Paul's most majestic work, J.I. Packer calls it the high peak of the Bible. The amazing, beautiful, breathtaking theology in this book. It plums the depths of our sinfulness and, and our desperate need for rescue, for redemption. It soars to the heights of the glories of God's mysterious ways and His electing and saving and sustaining and keeping love. It spells out in unprecedented clarity the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And after all of that, we come to the end of this letter and it takes a strange turn. There's no direct theology being taught in this big chunk of 16 verses that we just read. It's just a long list of names and greetings. It's Paul's Christmas card list right here at the end of Romans after all of this glorious theology. We're reminded this is a personal letter. It's written to real people in a real place, in a real time. But as those who are very far removed from those real people in that real place, in that time, passages like this can, can even seem somewhat unnecessary to us. Feels like something of a flyover section in our reading of Scripture. You know what those passages are like, the flyover passages? They, they call states like Indiana flyover states. There's no point in spending much time here. You just fly over it while you're getting to the important places. We're tempted to approach sections of Scripture like this, those long genealogies, those lists of names which are unpronounceable, long lists of geography and places that we're unfamiliar with. But here's what we know. There are no flyover sections in Scripture. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, Paul writes, All Scripture, every word, is breathed out by God, is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We live by this. We wholeheartedly affirm this. All 66 books of the Bible. There's not one wasted word in any of them. And so this passage, like every other passage in Scripture, has much to offer us. Now that doesn't mean that every passage in Scripture is equally weighty in our lives. As you lay on your deathbed, I doubt that in that moment you will go, you know, if someone could read to me from Romans chapter 16, verses 1 through 16, I could die in peace. No, probably not. You're probably going to turn to other passages. But brothers and sisters, this passage is breathed out by God. It's perfect. Not one word too many. Not one word too few. It has much to offer us. But a question I want to ask us before we dig into this text is this. What is your level of affection? What is your level of warmth? What is your level of love towards the church? The church of Jesus Christ globally, yes, but I'm talking about this church too. Jesus loves his church. Jesus loves his church so much so that he left his heavenly throne and took on flesh. 
lived a life, a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief, tempted in all ways, just as we are, yet without sin, that he, that he died a miserable, torturous death of suffering on a cross. And he did so in order to make his enemies, those who were shaking their fist in his face, to be his beloved bride. As we come to the end of this amazing letter, what we see from Paul What we see Paul expressing is that he loves the church of Jesus Christ very much. He is expressing love for these Roman Christians who he has never met. He's expressing love for the church of the Lord Jesus. So we're going to look then at Paul's love for the church and the various ways he expresses that love to them. First, he shows his love in his commendation of one particular servant. Look at verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sancria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever way she may need from you, for she's been a patron of many and of myself as well. Because of the way Phoebe is set apart here in these verses from the other names in this passage. It's almost certain that Phoebe's the one who carried this letter with her to the Roman Christians from Paul. She's the one. She's the one who delivered this letter to the Roman church. She is likely a single woman, probably a widow because she's mentioned alone. And it is this dear sister who in all likelihood, carries this glorious letter that that we have before us to the Roman church. Donald Gray Barnhouse says this, never was there a greater burden carried by such tender hands. The theological history of the church through the centuries was in the manuscript which she brought with her. The Reformation was in her luggage, he says. Think of this, this letter that we have entrusted to one woman as she traveled. Paul calls her our sister. She's dear to Paul. Paul wants the Romans to know she's dear to you too, even though you don't know her yet. He's saying to them, you you don't know Phoebe yet, but Phoebe is your sister. There is a warmth here. There is a a family connection. There is a love in the body of Christ that transcends having met each other. She's our sister. Paul says she's a servant of the church in Sencrea. The word servant here is really the word deacon. But Paul uses this same word, deacon, a number of different ways in his writings. He uses it of household servants. He calls the secular government a deacon in Romans chapter 13. He uses this word in in application to Christ himself, this word deacon. It's also used in an official way, for an official office within the church. The office of deacon. And Paul lines out what what the requirements are for someone to fit into that office. He also generally applies it, though, to those who are taking the gospel to new locations. They're deacons. He even uses it in reference to false apostles one time, deacons. And so there's much debate over Phoebe. There's much debate over Phoebe, the deacon from the church of Sencrea. What exactly does Paul mean by that? Is he just describing her servant's heart? Or does he mean something more official? Did she have a recognized position as a deacon, a deaconess in the church at Sencrea? 
as Paul describes in 1 Timothy 3, with the office of deacon? And the answer is, from this text, we don't know. We don't know what the answer is. I tend to think he's using the word in a more official way. That she's a deaconess in Sancria. But there are good people. In fact, as we look at this debate and this issue over deacons in the church, male and female, can women be deacons? Is de- are, are, are only men to be deacons? Here's what, what happens. Some of my great heroes of the faith land on both sides of the debate. So you don't just get to pick your favorite person and go, I'll just side with them. They must be right. There's no way to know for sure on the basis of this verse alone. But here's what we know for sure. She was known for her faithful service in the church. Phoebe was known for her faithful service. That notoriety that she had was unknown, though, to the Romans. The Roman Christians didn't know about her. They didn't know about her faithfulness and her service in the church. They don't know who she is. And so Paul commends her to them. And a letter of con- con- not condemnation, commendation was, was common in the ancient world. You would, you would travel to a no- new location and you would have a letter from someone they knew and trusted that said, this person checks out. They're good. Welcome them. We see that here with, with Phoebe in this letter. Verse 2, he says, she's been a patron of many and of myself as well. Pa- a patron in the Roman world is, is a benefactor. It's a person of some wealth. A person of some social means and social standing who can give support to people that they favor, to a favored benefactor. And Paul says that he and many other believers have received Phoebe's generosity. She has supported us. She has helped us. She gave support. She gave hospitality. She gave assistance and sacrificial care to see the gospel advance. So as Paul sends her to the Roman church, he commissions them to welcome her. And not just any kind of welcome. He says, welcome her in the Lord. Welcome her in a way worthy of the saints. In other words, welcome her the way you would welcome me. In a way that that comes from our union of Christ. That kind of welcome. A, A welcome that transcends our particular personalities and our particular affinities. No, in a... In a in a way that springs from our unity in Christ. And part of that welcome then is to, he says, help her in any way she may need from you. So he commends Phoebe to them to begin this section. He commends her mission, whatever it is, in Rome, and says, help her with it. And he tells them, she's your sister. She's God's servant. Love her. Welcome her. Help her. Then in verses 3 through 15, Paul gives us a a large list of names with this command to greet them. Some of these people we know a little more about. Some people we know almost nothing about. But these are, as we go through this list, remember this. These are our brothers and sisters. Verse 3, greet Prissa and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Now these two we've met. We've met them in the book of Acts. Prissa is a shortened version of the name Priscilla. Priscilla and Aquila we have met before. 
They are a husband and wife team. They were leather workers and tent makers. At times, Paul worked with them in their business. They were evidently fairly successful in business, and they used that business as a platform to advance their true goal in life, which was not to make money and succeed in business. Their true goal was to make Christ known. And the business just facilitated that for them. They were in Rome when Claudius expelled all the Jews from Rome, and so they met Paul in Corinth. They accompanied Paul to Ephesus, and after Paul left Ephesus, they stayed behind. They stayed in Ephesus. They're the ones who helped Apollos, the great preacher, understand the scriptures more fully and more accurately. They were still in Ephesus when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. He mentions them. There was a church meeting in their home in Ephesus. At some point, they travel back to Rome, and Paul greets them in this letter that Paul is now writing from Corinth, but now they're in Rome, and again, have a church meeting in their home. At some later point, they went back again to Ephesus, and at the end of his life, Paul greets them there as he writes from a Roman prison to Timothy in 2 Timothy. Paul loves these two dearly. He calls them my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Not my, my, not my co-workers in tent making. Remember my, uh, my former co-workers who we labored on tents together. That's not how he sees them. That's just their occupation. But their lives were all about laboring for the cause of Christ. And he says, they risked their necks for my life. We don't have a record of what they actually did. We don't know what that was. How is it they put their lives on the line for Paul's sake? Maybe during the riot in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, they did something. They risked themselves to to save Paul. But Paul owes them a debt of gratitude, he says. And then he says this in verse 4, Not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. All the churches of the Gentiles ought to be giving thanks for, for these two, for Priscilla and Aquila. Why? Well, first, because they not only helped and rescued the Apostle Paul, who is the Apostle to the Gentiles. That's one reason they should all be giving thanks. We should all be giving thanks for them. But also, they labored tirelessly to advance the gospel and to serve the church in one Gentile city after another. And because of that, Paul says, all the Gentiles owe them a debt of thanks. And then he says in verse 5, greet also the church in their house. They apparently did this everywhere they went. They saw all that they had, their their finances, their home, and their very lives as belonging to God for the purpose of his kingdom, for the purpose of his church. So they spent lavishly of their finances to travel and support the ministry. They, they, they opened up their home for the church of Jesus Christ to, to have a place to gather and to worship and They risked their very lives for the cause of the gospel, Paul says. Goes on in verse 5. Greet my beloved Eponidas, who was the first to convert to Christ in Asia. This is all we know about him. It's a Greek name. It's a name often given to slaves. But whoever this man is, he holds a special place in Paul's heart. He was the first convert to Christ in Asia. The first of millions. And Paul, Paul saw thousands, but he remembers the first guy. He remembers this guy. This man stands out to him. He is 
beloved to Paul. It says in verse 6, greet Mary, who's worked hard for you. Mary's a Jewish name. Again, all we know about her is what Paul says here. We don't know who this Mary is. But this expression, worked hard for you, she has worked hard for you. It carries the weight of having worked past the point of exhaustion. This dear sister of ours fully expended herself, wore herself out for the church of Jesus Christ. It says in verse 7, greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen, my fellow prisoners. They're well known to the apostles and they were in Christ before me. There is a lot of controversy surrounding this pair. Andronicus and Junia, especially Junia. She's the famous one of this, this twosome here. Now, some say Junia is actually a shortened version of the name Junius, the male name. That Paul's referencing two men here. An evangelistic team who went out taking the gospel like Paul and Barnabas. That's possible, but it's probably, I think it's more likely that Junia is the extent of the name, that this is a woman's name, Andronicus and Junia, that this is a husband and wife team like Priscilla and Aquila. We learn a couple things about them here. One is, Paul says they're his fellow prisoners. Now, we don't know that that, that means they were in prison with Paul at exactly the same time, or it could just mean they were also prisoners of Christ, and Paul just completely identifies with that. These are people who have suffered for Christ. And not just suffered, they've been arrested and imprisoned for the gospel. And he says this, they were in Christ before me. They were converted before Paul was converted. That would be significant to Paul. That would mean something to Paul. He hadn't forgotten who he was. And Paul says of these two, well, I was a persecutor of the church. While I was breathing out fiery threats, while believers were being murdered for the cause of Christ under my command, these two were worshipers of Christ. These two were in Christ. They were in the church. Paul hasn't forgotten that. That means something to him. But then he says the controversial part. They're well known to the apostles. Literally, the words here are, they're outstanding among the apostles. They are notable among the apostles. And so there has been much, much, much made of this statement from Paul. And the basic argument is this. If you go out on the internet or you buy some of the popular books or you take Bible classes that teach this passage in the college I teach at, uh, much will be made of Junia. And the argument is this. Paul is clearly saying Junia is an apostle. She's not only an apostle, she's one of the very best of the apostles And so this nullifies and voids all of Paul's prohibition against women preaching and holding offices like pastor and elder. That's the argument for Junia. Junia has become the poster girl for feminist egalitarian arguments against the clear teaching of the New Testament on the roles of men and women and of Christ's ordering of his church. There is much to be found about Junia. Despite the fact that there is this much controversy surrounding it, it really is quite simple. Paul is not saying these are the two best apostles. I think the word apostle here is being used loosely anyway. He's not talking about that hand-selected group of men that Christ selected, the capital A apostles. 
he is probably using it to refer to missionaries, among those who take the gospel. But either way, he's just saying, this husband and wife team is well known to the apostles. They are respected by them. They are admired by them. The people of God admire them. They have a reputation as faithful servants of God. They are honored for their sacrificial service to Christ, which has made them well known among God's people. They are a much respected husband and wife missionary team. To, to use this statement and lift it out of here and use it to contradict the clear teaching of other statements in the New Testament is a gross abuse. It is a dishonoring of this dear sister, frankly. And, and, and more than that, when we bring an agenda to the word of God that, that allows us to think we can get away with doing such a thing, when we take a statement like this that people are like, okay, what exactly does Paul mean here? And we go, we're building our whole system on this and we're going to undermine all these other things. We're going to undermine the other things Paul said clearly because we, we have this agenda we want to push through and we think Junia is the gal to get the job done. That doesn't just dishonor Junia, that dishonors the Lord. It dishonors the Lord whose word this is that we do not have the right to tamper with. He goes on in verse 8. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved, in the Lord. Again, this is another slave name. He, he possibly still is a slave, but to Paul, he is beloved in the Lord. That's who he is. That's what defines him. It says in verse 9, Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, my beloved Stachys. Urbanus is a common Roman name. We don't know anything about him. Paul calls him, though, our fellow worker in Christ. He is a partner in the gospel. And, and Paul uses this language. He says, he's not just my partner in the gospel, he's your partner in the gospel. Again, we see this theme. We're, we're in this together. We're in this together. We, we believe this as we support missionaries. We have a share in their work. Stachys, again, he calls my beloved. Such, such beautiful family language here for the saints. Some historical traditions say Ampliatus from verse 8, Urbanus and Stachys were all martyred for the cause of Christ. We don't know that for sure, but some historical tradition says that. Verse 10, greet Apelles, who was approved in Christ. This phrase, approved in Christ, it means someone who's been tested and has come through it. He's proven himself. He's been refined by testing. His faith, his character have been tested and proved genuine. He goes on in verse 10, greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. History tells us there's a well-known Roman citizen named Aristobulus. He is the grandson of Herod the Great. He's part of the Herodian dynasty. That's the, the same Herod we read about in the Christmas story. Who, who was so zealous to murder the Christ that he had all the Jewish boys to and under murdered. His grandsons, Aristobulus. Aristobulus lived in Rome. He died before this letter was written. So Paul doesn't say to greet him. He talks about those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. 
But within the household of this high-class Roman citizen, this grandson of this wicked, murderous man, this man who himself was probably not a believer, within his household there are a number of people apparently who have trusted in Christ. Probably many of them servants. One of them appears to be a servant who's been given the slave name Herodian. So Paul goes on. The next thing he says in verse 11, greet my kinsman Herodian. So that no Jew is going to take on Herod's name. Wicked, evil Herod. No Jew is going to take his name on unless he's a member of Caesar's household as a servant and has been given that name. Slaves didn't get to have the same names as other Roman citizens. You got a new name if you were a slave. Herodian is likely a slave, a servant in Caesar's household. And of course, Aristobulus' household would have come underneath that heading. Verse 11, greet those who are in Christ who belong to the family of Narcissus. Again, a greeting to a collection of believers in a wealthy person's household. Narcissus was a wealthy freedman living in Rome. Narcissus had gained his wealth, he had gained his freedom, he had gained his fame through the downfall of Messalina. Messalina was the wife of the emperor Claudius, and Messalina had conspired against her husband and was discovered. She was caught in her conspiracy to have him killed, and she herself was executed. Well, it was Narcissus who's the one who reported this plot to Claudius. He's ultimately the one who gave the order to have her run through with a sword. And so he became wealthy because of that. He became famous because of that. But within this man's household, probably again among his servants, was a group of people who had believed in Christ. And now some of these servants, by the time Paul writes this letter, would have actually been transferred into Nero's court to serve but would have still been referred to by the name of Narcissus. These were of his household, but they're now serving under Nero. But can you see how the the gospel is advancing in remarkable ways? Every area of society, even to the highest levels, through the most unlikely people, the kingdom of God goes forth. Jesus says that's what the kingdom is like, by the way. It's what the kingdom of heaven is like. Jesus says it's like a grain of mustard seed. The the smallest little seed, but it grows and it grows and it grows so that even birds perch in its branches. Or he says it's like a little bit of leaven that is, is worked into a large amount of flour and it permeates the whole measure of the flour. Christ's gospel, Christ's church, Christ's kingdom are unstoppable. They cannot be contained. No amount of wickedness, no amount of power can stop the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even the gates of hell will not prevail against the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see that in a simple list of names at the end of the book of Romans. Verse 12, he says, greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Most commentators believe these are twin sisters. Their names mean dainty and delicate. Greet dainty and delicate for me. That's not how Paul views them, though. 
He doesn't view them as fragile. He doesn't view them as helpless. He says they are workers for the Lord. These two, Tryphena and Tryphosa, they're not living a life of ease and luxury. They are laborers for the cause of Christ, our sisters. He goes on in verse 12. Greet the beloved Persis, who's worked hard in the Lord. This is another woman. Her name just means one from Persia. Perhaps taken to Rome as a slave from Persia. Most commentators believe this is an older woman because of the way Paul uses past tense language here. That many of her years of laboring are sort of behind her. Nevertheless, though, this woman has worked hard in the Lord, Paul says. He says in verse 13, Greet Rufus. Chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Rufus, Paul says, literally the word is elect. Elect in the Lord. John MacArthur in his commentary says, this is not a reference to salvation. Because Paul has already made it clear that every believer, as Romans 8 says, is predestined to be conformed to the image of God. So every believer is elect in the Lord. He's saying Rufus was chosen for another Reason, And we get some idea of what that is in the gospel of Mark. Mark published his gospel account while he was in Rome. He wrote it after Paul had written this letter. And in Mark's gospel, when Jesus is no longer physically able to carry his cross, a man named Simon of Cyrene is forced to carry it for him. Well, the other gospel writers tell us that too, about Simon of Cyrene. But Mark, who's writing from Rome... First publishing it in Rome, after Paul has already written this letter, Mark gives one detail that the other Gospels don't give. He gives a bit of commentary and he says this, Simon is the father of Alexander and Rufus. Why does Mark add that piece of information? Because he's in Rome and so he knows, they know who Alexander and Rufus are. Simon the Cyrene carried Jesus' cross. He's the father of Alexander and Rufus. And they would go, oh, their dad. That's who carried this. Paul says, greet his mother. She's a mother to me as well. We have mention of Simon of Cyrene serving in the church of Antioch. But most commentators and historians believe it's the same guy. The same Simon of Cyrene that carried the cross of Christ. So it is likely that Paul knew him and knew his wife. And just consider Paul. Consider the life of Paul with his Jewish pedigree at the moment of his conversion. What we think of Martin Luther and his conversion and how he hadn't really intended to split from the Roman Catholic Church just to purify it, but they made the decision for him. No, you're out. We hate you. Think of Paul. Once leading the charge in opposition to the Lord Jesus Christ and his church, now converted and worshiping and preaching Christ, what might his family's response have been like? Perhaps he lost them in his conversion as well. But he found something else in his conversion. In his conversion to Christ, he found in Rufus's mother something as a mother figure for his own life. How beautiful is that? Psalm 68 says, God sets the lonely in a family. What a beautiful thing. 
says in verse 14, Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermes, and the brothers who are with them. We don't know anything about these men. It's likely that Paul didn't know them personally because he doesn't say anything else about them. It appears to be one of the house churches in Rome, but even though Paul doesn't know them, he has heard about them. He knows their names. He cares for them. Similarly, in verse 15, greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Philologus and Julia are probably another husband and wife team. And then we see this brother and sister team, Nereus and Olympus. And again, he says, all the saints that are with them. This is probably another house church in Rome. And after pouring out all of this love for the saints, for his family, for his brothers and sisters, Paul issues this one command of application, greet one another with a holy kiss, verse 16 says. All the churches of Christ greet you. So this this command, greet one another with a holy kiss. This example, all the churches of Christ greet you. All the other churches that Paul had contact with send their greetings. They send their love to the church in Rome. They never have. They never will meet them this side of eternity. But they are eager to express their love for them. They love them. This is a really remarkable thing that the gospel does. There is this unity of fellowship, this kinship that transcends geography, it transcends physical contact, it transcends familiarity and culture. Because of our union with Christ, believers are one together in Him. We are unified in purpose. We are unified in worship. We will one day be forever unified in experience in the new heavens and the new earth. And Paul mentions this holy kiss. This holy kiss. Greet one another with a holy kiss. It's a very specific cultural expectation or uh, expression of affectionate love. Of course, many of you know the Amish still practice this and it can be somewhat jarring if you don't know that they practice it and you just see it play out before your eyes. Paul is advocating though. In fact, in fact, he is commanding that believers greet one another with warm, affectionate, tangible expressions of family love. Now, Paul doesn't root the, the, the particular act of kissing in creation. He doesn't root the act of kissing in the gospel. And so it's what this kiss represents that's the enduring command from Paul. In most of our relationships, a kiss would not communicate what Paul wants us to communicate. A hug might. Even a handshake might. Certainly saying, I love you might. But in most of our relationships, to simply walk up to another believer in a church, perhaps you're, you're visiting a church one Sunday morning, and you just say, I, I, just, I, I was preaching at a different church last Sunday. Had I walked in, and the woman that greeted me at the door, I just planted one right on her lips. I would not have got to preach. It would not have communicated warm, familial love and affection. It would have communicated something quite different. The point here is this. 
There's no place for coldness in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We who have been bought with the precious blood of Christ, who have been united with other believers in him, who will spend eternity with one another, we who have been filled with his Holy Spirit, with his love shed abroad in our hearts, it ought to be overflowing out of us onto one another. We should be, of all people, the most loving, the most affectionate, the most free with our expressions of love and affirmation. We, we should be the ones who, when we see something noble, when we see something of worth, when we see something commendable in one another, we should, of all people, be the ones who actually say something about it. That's what Paul is commending to. In fact, that's what Paul's commanding here. Warm, loving affection among God's people, especially in the local church. We, we belong to Christ. We are members of the same family. Jesus in John 13, he says, how will people know that you're my disciples? They'll know by our love for one another. That's what the watching world is. The, the unbelieving world is not impressed with our statement of doctrine. They're not. Believers are going to look for that. If they go to our website to look for a church, they're going to want to find out, what does this church believe? What do they teach? What do they stand on? Absolutely. The unbelievers are not impressed. It won't make them marvel. What will make them marvel? How will they know we belong to Christ? It's by our love for one another. To paraphrase Charles Spurgeon, when we take the bread and the cup in a moment... Symbolizing, among other things, our unity with one another, we should mean it. We ought to mean it when we come. Let me just close with these words from our brother, the Apostle John. John history tells us in his old age, in his old age, he couldn't even walk anymore, and they would carry him out on a platform to preach, and he would just lean his feeble, dying body forward and say, love one another. And that was his message to the church. Love one another. Here's what he says. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us. And his love is perfected in us. May we be a church who loves one another. Let's pray. Almighty God, thank you for your word, Lord, for this example for us from our brother Paul. Pray that you would make us faithful out of our love for you to love one another. And we, lo we know, Lord, that Love's just not a matter of mushy feelings. It's not a matter of just a affirming error. It's not a matter of 
of turning a blind eye to sin. Love does no wrong to its neighbor. And so we know that sometimes love requires us to speak hard truths with one another. We pray we'd be a church and a people marked by true love. True love for you, our God. True love for all of your people. And in the most tangible and practical ways, true love for those in this church that you have called us into close fellowship with. Pray, Lord, that that as we love you and love one another, that the watching world would see, that their ears would be open to hear the gospel we proclaim, that by your spirit you would save them and transform this community. We pray these things, Lord, for your kingdom's sake. We pray them for the joy of your people. In Jesus' name, amen.